Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Lyle Ruloffs, President of Berea College, as our guest. So, when did you realize you loved physics? Well, actually, that goes all the way back to uh, a kid reading science fiction. And back in those days, the scientist was oftentimes the hero. And uh, uh, so probably by the time I was 10 or 12 years old, I thought it would be fun to be a scientist. And of course, had it not gone well, if uh, if I would have not been very good at uh, at physics and the oh. other sciences and math, then I probably would have changed direction. But uh, but uh, I, I confirmed later that I really did seriously love the, love the discipline, not just uh, the image of it in science fiction. Well, and, and I know that, um, you know, in your um, long and distinguished career, you know, I know that you, um, you know, you were an endowed faculty chair. Now, are you able to teach in your current role? I am not really able to teach. I did teach one semester, taught a full class. It was a uh, a year in which we had lost a member of the physics department and everyone was pretty disheartened. Uh, and I contributed by offering a course that he would have taught um, had he not passed away. And that was uh, that was really fun and revealing. Uh, I found out that Berea College students are just as good and just as bad as uh, as students anywhere else that I've taught, which is uh, which is exactly what you want to want to discover, of course. But my contract doesn't allow me to teach except by specific permission of the chair of the board. And of course, that's because they want me uh, to be doing presidential things with as much time as I have energy for. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I I have to ask, I know one of your hobbies is running. Yes. And, And I would imagine, you know, based on where Berea is is located, you know, primary service region being southern. Appalachia, you know, you, you you probably run a pretty good distance and it's, it probably isn't flat. So how, how far do you run? Well, if I'm not training for anything, I average about 20 miles a week. Um, we are at the edge of the Appalachian foothills. So there are directions I can run that are pretty hilly and there are directions that I can run that aren't too bad. Um, and so one of my favorite, we have a, we have a 9,000 acre forest at the college and a beautiful outreach center that uh, is kind of the jump off point for people who want to hike in the forest or be in the forest. And if I run from my home here out to the forestry outreach center, that's a beautiful five mile run, including the last bit uh, in some serious trail running. And that's my favorite run, actually. And then if I'm not feeling like I want a five run five mile run back home, then I get my wife to pick me up out there. Actually, <laughs> me and my dog. Uh, the dog runs with me too. So, so so what's your what's your mile pace? Um, well, these are these are pretty personal questions, but um, <laughs> I uh, I'm very comfortable. Uh, see, I'm almost seventy years old, so I um, you know I have to. Uh, I, I'm not as fast as I used to be. I'll put it that way. Uh, I'm very comfortable at uh, nine and a half minute miles. Uh, if I'm in, if I'm trying to prove something, get it, get it down to eight and a half, and uh, I can survive that. Well, that's hey, that's that's better than than most people any age, you know, and especially being able to run that many miles each week. That's great. Well, it's uh, I I think running 
is highly recommendable. I mean, I think I'd probably weigh 350 pounds if I weren't a runner because I don't have a whole lot of self-control at the table. So it's a good thing that I run. That's okay. You, you, you and me both. I've, I've got four little kiddos and I, I end up raiding the pantry and eating things I shouldn't be eating at night. So it's like, <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your, your, your professional history. I, I know that, you know, you earned your bachelor's at Calvin and uh, you earned your MS and PhD at the University of Maryland when they were in the ACC conference. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to me about the mentors that helped shape you? You know, and you can even take that to the presidency as well. Sure. Um, well, thinking back to uh, my years in school, uh, there was a faculty member at Calvin College by the name of Vernon Ehlers, that's E-H-L-E-R-S, and he's still pretty well known because he was elected from the uh, Grand Rapids District to the U.S. Congress. Um, he had been a physics faculty member, and his motto was always, uh, physicists are omnicompetent. And of course, that was uh, that was music to our ears, those of us who were his students, but then he actually went out and proved it. He decided that uh, he could help the Kent County in Grand Rapids solve a solid waste problem, which he did. That got him elected to the city council. And from there, he just moved up the political ladder. And he was the um, was the fifth ranking Republican in the U.S. House and a, a really good guy, uh, a, a one of one of these conservatives that could work with anybody and, of course, an expert in science. So. Uh, then at one point, I actually came back to Calvin and served as a sabbatical replacement for him. So I actually got to teach his classes, too. And I could see how he approached the uh, challenge of teaching. He was really good at teaching physics to non-physicists, to people who are studying elementary education, that sort of thing. So I learned a ton from him, both about responsibilities beyond the classroom, things you could do, Um uh, beyond just being a good professor, but I learned quite a bit about being a good professor from him too. And then uh, at Maryland, uh, I had uh, I had the good fortune of having an, both an excellent PhD mentor, but also the group leader, which we were part of. So this this was a group that focused on an area of physics called surface physics, and the the person who was overall responsible for the group was a person by the name of Robert L. Park, and. Uh, uh, again, an amazing person and worth emulating in a lot of ways. He brought humor to everything he did. And I have since discovered that humor makes uh, makes almost everything better. Um, and I, I will add, you mentioned Maryland being in the ACC at the time. I was a basketball player on one of the graduate faculty staff physics intramural teams. And we would play in the gym on Saturday mornings. And one time I actually got to play a pickup game against Buck Williams, who went on to a pretty uh, significant NBA career. He was the starting center for the New Jersey Nets back when they were the New Jersey Nets. And I'll never forget trying to guard him and all of a sudden seeing his kneecaps above my head while I'm <laughs> trying to reach up because he's just jamming it over my head, you know. So, so I guess I, I could say Buck Williams was my mentor who convinced me I better stay in physics that <laughs> that MBA career didn't look look very good and then um, once I got started in academia myself uh, I watched each president I worked with carefully I didn't really think I was going to become a college president but uh, I was always sort of interested in the 
the whole uh, set of things that go along with academic leadership. So I got a, a chance to learn from presidents things that I wanted to uh, do and things that I didn't think would work for me and uh, didn't work for me. So um, uh, and uh, then I'll, I'll mention one more one more person, which uh, in retrospect seemed a little surprising. I had a summer job, summer construction job all the way through college. That was the way I supported myself in college. And um, my uh, construction honcho, we called him, was a very adept person. He could take a crew of 30 crude people and turn them into a workforce. And I was the lead apprentice in the group. These are all unionized people, all journeymen. And he was, uh, he was a, a supervisor, not in the union. I, I was in the union as apprentice and I figured out how you could, uh, organize an effort using, uh, people pretty different than yourselves, how to, how to, uh, how to get along with them, how to, uh, build good relationships and so on. And here I am a college student uh, majoring in physics and math, but I'm getting along with these construction guys and uh, uh, learning a lot from them, actually. Wow. Wow. So now you have been at, at Berea for since 2012. Right. And can, can you talk to me? So something that, that stands out right away, I, I oftentimes will ask the question, you know, well, how, how does your institution compete in a, in a very saturated market? But I'll bring up a few things that I noticed right away. A $1.6 billion endowment, you know, especially for a private institution, roughly 1,500 students, that's, that's pretty unheard of. How, how does that endowment come about? Well, it, it, uh, lots, of, lots of people say uh, Berea is very, very widely admired and, uh, for a little school in Kentucky has quite a national reputation. In fact, right now we are ranked 26th among national liberal arts colleges in the U.S. News and World Report rankings, which is also unheard of for a right. little school in Kentucky. But uh, so people say to me often, well, if I had a $1.6 billion endowment, I could be, I, I could lead a remarkable institution too. But actually it worked the other way around. We had a, had a mission, uh, first put in place around the turn of the 20th century that we were not going to charge tuition and we were going to give students an opportunity to come to college, get a quality education. We'd give them a job so that they could earn money for their incidentals, living expenses and so on, and not charge them any tuition. And it turns out that that kind of a mission is of interest to, uh, to people of means. Back then, at the turn of the 20th century, our president went to wealthy folks in New England and said, look, there are these students with no opportunity for college in Kentucky. One of them is the next Abraham Lincoln. Uh, would you help me educate them? And so that was the foundation of the giving that led to the resources that enabled us to do all this without charging students tuition. So if you look at a $1.6 billion endowment, uh, uh, that is roughly um, that's roughly a million dollars per student with our current enrollment. And you can take about 5% of your money out of the endowment each year, and it will still continue to grow. So that gives us about $50,000 per student to work with. And with that, we can cover all the costs of providing a high quality education, as well as 
facilities and uh, everything else that goes along with it. So, um, but to get there, we had to let people know they were going to educate other people's children. They were helping to educate other people's children, uh, young men and young women who deserved a chance but weren't getting an opportunity. That's always resonated with donors. And um, that message over the years uh, produced about $600 million in giving. Overall, if you add everything up, and then when you put in what the stock market can do, if you have your money in the stock market for 120 years, that's what gets you to $1.6 billion. So someone else could do it, um, but you have to, you have to have started on it decades ago for it to really be working at this point. Um, if you wanted to shift over to the Berea model now, you'd have to figure out a way to get yourself to a good starting point on that and then build from that. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, to me, that's, I mean, it really is, you know, astounding, you know, what's being done in a very positive way um, at Berea. And now how, how many, um, how many first generation students do you have? Well, it varies year to year, but typically it's about 55% of our incoming class is first generation. Um, and the neat thing is that um, quite a number of faculty and staff are first generation too. So um, people who have, who share that kind of situation with students are the kind of people who are drawn to work at a place like Berea too. They, they said, I got my chance. Now I want to be part of the effort to provide it to other people. So when we, at each commencement, we ask um, all the students who are first generation to stand up, but then we ask for faculty, staff, and anyone who's at the commencement, uh, any first generation college graduate, and we'll have more than half the whole auditorium standing up. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that 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 must be so um, valuable, important, um, especially as it relates to retent persistence. Mm -hmm. retention all the way through to graduation. I know your first year retention rate, just to mention that, is uh, over 80%, yeah, which is and, really remarkable. And we're working it into the high 80s. Uh, COVID set us set everyone back a little bit, but uh, uh, we're, we're well, uh, well into the 80% and graduation rates approaching 70%. So, um, yeah. And one thing most many people don't know, I found this in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago. If you take the cohort we serve, so the, about the bottom 20% of the socioeconomic spectrum in the U.S., um, only 22% of those students, if they start at a college, a four-year college or university, actually finish a degree in six years. So if you can do like we are in high 60s, you're doing more than three times better than the overall odds that this group of students. Now, that's not quite fair because we're pretty selective. We can since we don't charge tuition and offer a, a pretty attractive experience, we can get the students with a lot of potential, even if they didn't have a great background because of their poverty and and uh, disadvantage, uh, various kinds of disadvantages. We can still select for the kids who have a lot of potential and have shown resilience and so on. So we should do better than 22%, but we do a lot better. Absolutely. How do you engage, uh, how do you engage local the local community and local businesses, and, and maybe you can tie that into, you know, making sure students are career ready. Well, um, first of all, we're in a small town. There are about, I think there are about 13,000 people living in Berea. So a 
a college is a pretty significant part of the overall environment. Uh, we also contribute very significantly to quality of life in the town with uh, an athletics program, a good speaker program. We're, we're always working hand in hand with the mayor and city council on improving parks, improving trails. Um, the, the new, the trail that goes out to the uh, forest that I mentioned that I love to run, um, that's been constructed in pieces over the last about 20 years. And we just got it done about five years ago all the way. Uh, so we're appreciated for that. Um, we, uh, we also have good relationships with local industries because they're always looking for good employees and people who are already in Kentucky. So they're not trying to get them to move to Kentucky. And one of the most interesting actually is a, a new business, a new kind of agribusiness where you grow vegetables, tomatoes, leafy greens, and so on in large greenhouses uh, using uh, much less water uh, than traditional agriculture. Uh, you can do it organically and so on. And uh, uh, the company that's working on that in our part of the country is called App Harvest for Appalachian Harvest, A-P-P-H-A-R-B-E-S-T. And one of their huge greenhouses is here in Berea. And since we have an organic farm ourselves, there's a natural uh, interest in one another uh, that works for both of us. Um, Beyond that, um, we do the typical things like sponsor civic activities. And I'm, I'm invited by the mayor to come and address the city council once every three months. Um, uh, we're having our Christmas concert coming up early in December. So each year I, we have that. I invite the mayor and all the city council persons to come enjoy the Christmas concert with me. So all, all those kinds of things. Not to say it's particularly easy. A college and a town are completely different entities and um, have different interests and so on. And uh, Kentucky's a pretty red state and Berea's a pretty blue place overall. So um, we uh, don't always find ourselves politically aligned. But uh, most most of the leaders around here are pretty pragmatic. I'm pretty pragmatic, even though I'm a, I'm progressive in my personal politics, but in terms of how I want to operate as a citizen and as a leader of an organization, I want to be more pragmatic than, than either conservative or progressive. So, mm -hmm. so how are you engaging alumni? Well, there we have an advantage in that alums already know about us and, and uh, most of them are pretty grateful for the opportunity they had. Um, we have a disadvantage too. If you, if you admit only um, students with no money, then when they graduate, they still don't have any money. And so uh, if you're looking to, if we could only look to our alums for financial support, we'd probably be in trouble because they need, uh, they need 10, 20, 30 years to really become uh, financially very successful and able to help us. Some do. Um, uh, so the, one of our alums, for example, owns a NASCAR team and, uh, and he owns a sophisticated specialty engineering firm that serves automakers all over the world. It's located in, in the Detroit area. So some of our alums are very successful and can, can really help us. But, um, if you compare 
uh, Berea to any other institution in the top 30 in, in the country, our graduating classes have far less means and far less ability to support the institution than any of those other schools. Uh, but if we work with them um, and keep them engaged, it, it usually works out at the end of the day. And our big goal is in those cases like that to say, well, we understand you can't give us a lot of money now, but at least put us in your will. And uh, uh, yes. so uh, that way, uh, realized bequests form a significant part of the endowment. And we have an agreement with the board of trustees that any uh, un undirected bequests that come in go right into the endowment to support uh, uh, covering the tuition costs of students. So that all works for us. In fact, I have a saying when I'm on the road, uh, where there's a will, we want to be in it. And uh, that uh, that works for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh can you talk a little bit about the history of the institution? So established in 1855, um, and Berea was the first college in the Southern United States to be co-educational and racially integrated. Right. So right. can you can you talk a little bit about that that history? Sure. Well, the way that got started was there was a abolitionist pastor by the name of John Greg Fee, F-E-E, -E, uh, who had uh, whose father was a slave owner, actually, a father, his family uh, lived in northern Kentucky, and they had slaves. Uh, he went off to college and became a convicted abolitionist, uh, was uh, that led to rocky relationships with his family, obviously, but he uh, actually arranged to receive his bequest from his father while his father was still living in the form of one of the family slaves. Uh, and uh, and John Fee then um, liberated that slave. Um, but he uh, he was trained as a pastor. So he came to our part of Kentucky and was trying to start churches around the uh, abolitionist theme and was finding it heavy going. He, he had had some success. But then an intern from Oberlin came to work with him over one Christmas holiday, and together somehow they hit upon the plan of starting a school because they thought in terms of, <clears throat> of supporting a social cause like ending slavery, maybe a school would actually be more influential than a church. And that was the origin of Berea College, as you said, in 1855. The Civil War came along shortly afterward, which uh, completely... Uh, overran, uh, overran our part of Kentucky. The founder and all the other uh, people who were with him had to flee for their lives. They were attacked uh, by mobs. Um, John Fee found his way to Camp Nelson, which was a Union fort on the Kentucky River uh, where many uh, escaped slaves or free uh, slaves actually went to join the Union Army. And so he was uh, providing for their spiritual needs, but also teaching them. Uh, and so when the when the Civil War ended, um, he recruited uh, a lot of those soldiers who hadn't been educated to come to to the to come to the school. And they were they were an early population uh, together with poor whites in the area who we were educating. So uh, that got us going. By 1870, we were a pretty much a thriving institution with a couple of buildings and uh, residence halls and so on. Um, but then the segregation era came along. 
So even though we were well integrated throughout the whole 19th century, in 1904, the state of Kentucky passed a law aimed at Kentucky uh, that uh, precluded educating black and white students in the same school. If you wanted to have both black students and white students, they had to be in separate facilities at least 25 miles apart. Mm. So uh, we fought that law all the way up to the Supreme Court. The law was passed in 1904. Uh, we finally lost uh, seven to two in the Supreme Court in 1908. Uh, and at that point, we did have to segregate. And uh, we were supposed to pay a large fine, but the state forgave us the fine uh, because we had continued to educate black and white students together for those four years. Uh, so we uh, we helped create an endowment for a separate school located in Shelbyville, Kentucky, which is about 70 or so miles. It's close to Louisville. So there was a good population of African Americans there. And that school called the Lincoln Institute, uh, functioned until the end of the segregation era in the, in the fifties. At which point we were able to reintegrate after Brown versus Board of Education. And uh, it took a little while, but, uh, we, we were up to about, uh, 20% students of color in the eighties. And now we're at about 40% students of color. Um, it was around the turn of the century, the same time that the segregation era happened, that we went to not charging any tuition, get, having every student work for the college, and just get really serious about fundraising so that uh, we could cover the cost of tuition. And those uh, those ingredients have been the mainstay. Every student works, no student pays tuition. Uh, and uh, we make sure that the education is high quality so that they can do something with it. Well, and, and can, can you help our audience understand, you know, when you talk about getting a job, do these students take internships? And then when they graduate, do they, are they, do they already have a path um, of employment? How does that work? That, that is the, that is the most common path to a good job. We, uh, we learned that a long time ago. So in addition to uh, no tuition, we're very we're really focused on three, three bridges, a bridge into Berea. We're taking students that really don't know the environment they're getting into. So that's quite a transition. We have to support them. They're oftentimes, as you noted earlier, the first in their family to go to college. Um, so uh, that takes special effort. Our bridge through is providing every student with whatever their particular needs are to give them the best possibility of success. But the bridge out is internships. We even provide every student with a $500 clothing allowance so that they can be well-dressed for interviews. But you're absolutely right that if a student has chosen an internship in the area they're interested in, uh, that's oftentimes a great opportunity in terms of getting a job. Uh, their first job in that same company where they have worked. Um, so we have uh, about 250 internships every year, and we're graduating a little over 300 students. Uh, so in addition to the paid internships that some students can get, we're paying for 250 more. So most of our students have done at least one internship or some kind of a summer research experience if they're planning to go on to graduate school, that sort of thing. So we're, uh, I should mention too, that we're, uh, in, in terms of, of proportion of our students, we're way up there in terms of the number of students who either go on to professional schools or graduate schools as well. 
And so they need a different kind of bridge out uh, in order to be ready to be successful in graduate school or medical school or law school. Uh, is it is it hard to hire and keep top notch faculty? Uh, actually, not um, because the mission really appeals to to many many people, and so if you were interviewing. Berea College faculty, you'd probably hear them say things like, well, I came 18 years ago thinking I'd just try to figure out what this place was all about. And here I am 18 years and I, you know, now that I know what I'm, what I'm in, I'm, you know, it's just, I'm going to be here forever. But there are, there are some people we hire who look good and so on. And after a couple of years, it's pretty clear uh, this wasn't what they went to graduate school for. And so we're not surprised when somebody says, well, you know, good on you, Berea, but uh, it's not for me. So uh, that happens too. Uh, most people these days know enough about Berea to know what they're getting into. They know we don't pay that well, um, for example, because the first priority is the educational experience of the students. So nobody stays for the money, that's for sure. So where do you see Berea in 10 years? Well, they they like to tell me that Berea changes its presidents more than its presidents change Berea. So um, based on that, uh, I would say Berea will still be doing what it's doing now in 10 years and hopefully doing it even a little better. Um, we what would make me really proud of this whole approach to education is if in the next 10 years we succeeded in creating another Berea someplace else. Um, I was in pretty interesting talks with some folks in, um, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, who were interested in something like Berea for the Hispanic populations of the American Southwest and the Native American populations there. Mm. Uh, and you could imagine a Berea in Phoenix working a lot like, like this Berea works, except it would be a different kind of religious context. Um, this Berea came out of Protestant Christianity and is now very inclusive, but at uh, at its origin or at its core, we're still honoring the Christian uh, vision of the founder as um, uh, one way to uh, living the kind of life uh, most religious people want to want to live. So it would probably be a, a Catholic sort of context, but with a lot of mixture of Native American types of beliefs there. Uh, Obviously, students would have to work. They'd have to be part of it that way. We we connect to our region. 70% of our students come from Central Appalachia and Kentucky. And there, the connection regionally would obviously be to, to the American Southwest. Different, but an area where you find a lot of disadvantaged students there, too. That would be really exciting if the Berea model began to catch on uh, by new Bereas, planting themselves in other parts of the country where they're needed. Well, President Lyle Roloffs, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Well, it's been my pleasure. You're a, you're a good interviewer, Brad. I enjoyed talking to you. Excellent. Thank you.
Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.